It's fair to say that St. Louis Alderwoman Christine Ingracia is having a very busy session in the Board of Aldermen. In addition to shepherding her own legislation through the board, Ingracia is taking stock of an MLS stadium that's being built in the 6th Ward. Ingracia joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Rachel Lippman. And returning to the show for the first time since early January 2015. Where does the time go? Oh, man, I don't know. The alderwoman from the St. Louis's Sixth Ward. Good morning. Um, I, I hate to think that I haven't done anything interesting in, in that long of a time. So I appreciate the invitation today. <laughs> That's Christine Ingracia, by the way. <laughs> Actually, you've done like lots of interesting things. We've just been kind of slow on the upkeep. Thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate your time as always. And I want to start off with kind of a, a simple question for you. And it's a question that we've posed to other St. Louis aldermen and older women. Like, what do you think the state of St. Louis policy and politics is right now? Because some people would say it's kind of disjointed and fragmented more so than usual. Others say it's going just swimmingly. What's your opinion? I think I would probably vacillate between those two opinions. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, everything is going along swimmingly in St. Louis City. But I do think there are a number of reasons to be um, bullish on us doing smart things for the city and county. Um, I like the fact that when I first came to the board about six years ago, there were a lot of aldermen who had been there for 30 years or over and not a lot of new people. And I totally appreciate institutional knowledge, but we also need some people who think differently and have new ideas to come in as well. And we've been able to pass some legislation I don't think we would have previously been able to. I think in this uh, session, you've actually introduced a couple of very noteworthy bills. And before we talk about broader topics, I want to give you kind of free range to talk about some of the the things that you're pushing this session. Sure. So we just passed a couple of smart bills out of Health and Human Services, the first being a ban on conversion therapy for minors here in the city of St. Louis, following suit with uh, both Kansas City, Missouri, and Columbia. Uh, We worked with Promo on that. And hoping to push the conversation, similarly how uh, St. Louis City was a leader in same-sex marriage, um, push that conversation forward. It's a very dangerous practice that has basically been discredited, has no uh, value, and most psychological and psychological organizations have come out against it. And explain what conversion therapy is. Um, It's uh, an effort to make people who identify as LGBTQ, um, I guess for lack of a better term, turn them back to being straight or heterosexual. And I think you also have an initiative that's been introduced, hasn't yet had a committee hearing that you think will help uh, address some salary inequities within the city. Tell me a little bit about the bill. I think it advanced the, the question of salary history. Right. So uh, everyone is pretty familiar with the fact that women have uh, a real 
issue in terms of payment. So pay inequity, especially for women of color, not just in the city of St. Louis, but across the country. And so uh, I've been working with Alderwoman Martin, Navarro, and Rice, and the Women's Foundation of Greater St. Louis on a number of initiatives. And this particular bill would ban salary question history for St. Louis City employees, and then kind of take a look at how that works and in the future hope to ban the salary question for all employers here in the city of St. Louis. And then we are in talks right now, but haven't introduced a bill on paid family leave for city employees as well. So right now, city employees have to use up their vacation and sick time uh, and then maybe take FMLA leave if they have a baby, adopt a baby, or have to take care of an elder parent. And the salary question, how how big of a, of a problem do you think that is within sort of city employment? Is it for like, you know, the part-time childcare worker at uh, the recreation centers all the way up to, you know, the top aides to the mayor? Or what's the scope of that there? Uh, I think anecdotally, we know it's an issue. There is a payment study that's being conducted right now by the personnel department. And that, I think, data is supposed to be coming back within the next few months. And so we'll have a better idea about how it really looks. But as these things typically go, what the evidence usually suggests is that the lower you are on the pay scale, um, the greater you suffer from pay inequity. So there's another big issue that's brewing in the sixth ward, if I'm not mistaken, and that's the proposed soccer stadium for the as yet unnamed MLS team. I, it's Emos has got to get the naming right to that. It's a square <laughs> stadium. Come on. Yeah. I have to say, um, as I've often been platooned into being, or platooned, not platooned, <laughs> in, into being the, the designated St. Louis Public Radio Stadium reporter, th- this one is by far the least controversial. Even before uh, the ownership group made a lot of the changes that we're going to talk about, I think that they have learned a lot from the failure of the NFL stadium and, frankly, the failure of the other soccer stadium. And I think that a lot of people across the political spectrum that we already alluded to that's very fragmented is very excited about this. So I want you to provide your take since I think it's going to be in your ward. It is going to be in the sixth ward. And I'm very excited about it. Um, As you mentioned, it, it is the least controversial proposal that we've had before us since I've been at the board, and that includes the um, updated NFL stadium, the last attempt at MLS, and then the upgrades to the Scott Trade Center. And I am grateful for the ownership group. Enterprise Center now. Thank you. (laughs) I have a tendency to call things what they always used to be called. Like, I don't know what Riverport is called. Riverport is Riverport. Let's just be clear about that. Okay. I, th- I think it's now Hollywood <laughs> Casino or so something. So wait, it's but not yes. UMB Pavilion anymore? <laughs> no, I think it's Hollywood Casino Amphitheater, which is really weird because it's right next to Hollywood Casinos. But anyway. <laughs> At any rate, yes. So I'm very excited about the most recent release of information from the ownership group in terms of a number of things, including the fact that they will now own the land um, and the stadium itself. They have the administrative offices and practice fields here in the city of St. Louis. They've agreed to pay prevailing wage or pay um, unions to do the work where they can and then um, have elements of lead specifications, so green and sustainable infrastructure. And I think another thing that came out is they're going to pay some abated form of property taxes on it, which I think was a big sticking point when the resolution about this was coming up. Not like a big enough sticking point to like derail the stadium, but I think people were asking pretty sharp questions about it. Right now, for, for our listeners, this land is owned by MoDOT, so there aren't any taxes being generated now, and that was often used as kind of the excuse not to pay property taxes on this. Now, since they're going to be privately owning the stadium, 
that means that there's going to be property taxes going to a whole slew of city services and the St. Louis public school system. That's accurate, right. So they're going to have the land appraised and then base the property tax off of that appraisal. And then some of the pieces of property, um, just small pieces, are already owned privately and they're being bought out. So those already have an assessment on them. And, and Jason did mention that like it appears the ownership group did learn from the failures of the other. Is that just simply because it is a local team doing it? I mean, the MLS, the first MLS effort was relatively locally based as well. Is this just a factor that they have the money to do it? Is it that they're all locally owned? I mean, what do you think is making this group more responsive, it seems, to some of the concerns? I think absolutely the fact that they are locally owned. um, And so they probably have their ear to the ground more so than um, some of the previous efforts. But I would like to think in some small way, the very few of us who were uh, pushing back and asking some questions prior to the resolution being being introduced last session, um, that they did take those things into consideration and change some of the the items that were in the resolution. I was very concerned that that was the framework for moving forward, and without having something written down in the resolution, it was going to be very difficult to change. and And they were amenable to that, and I appreciate appreciate it. I think the the cost to the ownership group is they since they own the stadium now, I mean, I guess there's going to be less city support. There's still going to be, I think, some taxes that are collected within the stadium. Taxing, yeah, I think there's a couple special, ta- at least two, maybe three special taxing districts they're looking at there, Port Authority, SID, Transportation Development. Yep, those three are still on the on the table. But I think the benefit long term is if they own this stadium and the land outright, they get to reap all the benefits. If this team is wildly popular, <gasps> if they're able to get big concerts there, Soccer championships. Soccer championships. They don't really have to go through, like, the city or get a lease to do it. They're kind of like – get. They're taking all the risk, and they get to reap all the reward, basically. Right, and I think that's the way that private businesses are technically supposed to work. And the city is happy to pitch in where we can, but it is – mostly a private effort. And I don't think they're going to be making their money back, you know, in the first five or 10 years. But over the course of time, I think the idea is that that it will be at least a break even or moneymaker for them. I want to talk about another thing that kind of emanated from the last soccer uh, proposal. And that is, I think it was called Prop 1. Am I, am I getting that correctly? That's right. So for our listeners who may not remember this sequence, when there was another soccer stadium that was being proposed in 2017, there were two uh, items on the April 2017 ballot. One was Proposition 1, which raised the sales tax by half of a percent. It went to a bunch of different things, but primarily went to try to build the North-South Metrolink. And then there was, I guess, Proposition 2. Or, right. And that was diverting the use tax from that sales tax increase to help build the stadium. Proposition 1 passed. Proposition 2 failed. Which is how I thought it was going to happen, but regardless. I actually was kind of surprised Proposition 1 passed because I think for a lot of people, Proposition 1 was kind of used as a way to get maybe left-of-center voters to vote for Proposition 2. I mean, if, I, if I'm going to be honest about it, that's my observation. But the fact that it ended up passing means, you know, there's all this money being collected and the big question I think a lot of people have is, where is this money going to go? So I or wanna, where is it going? I want to ask you that question. <laughs> I think that's a fair question. So, yes, 60% of the money from the economic development sales tax that we imposed upon ourselves via the voters in April 2017 is supposed to go to North-South Metrolink expansion. That money is still sitting there. I believe it's 
probably around $18 million at this point and is supposed to be able to secure the bonds at some point for about a $667 million minimum operating segment of the of the light rail north and south. And the rest of the money is divided up into 20% funds for other things that are already happening. And I am concerned at this point that there's some discussion about whether or not that money is going to be used for what the voters intended. And so I, I have recently reached out to Metro, who um, indicated that they've done some transit-oriented development <coughs> study um, studies around the route and wants to talk to the mayor's office. And so I think right now is an important time to sort of re-engage and look at where that money is. Probably at some point start talking to St. Louis County. They did shrink the the line from around 170 in Goodfellow all the way to I-55 in Bayless um, into smaller increment for the city. But having the county and state on board, I think, is critical as well. I think one of the big problems for getting North-South Metrolink off the ground is St. Louis County. I think regardless of the administration, and this goes back to Charlie Dooley as well as Steve Stenger. I know we like to blame Steve Stenger for everything, but this is one (laughs) issue where I think it's kind of uh, across factional lines. Well, and probably even back to Westfall. I I wasn't here, so I can't tell you that. But I think that there there has been kind of resistance in St. Louis County to North-South Metrolink. I think a lot of people would rather see it go to like Maryland Heights or maybe another part of North County or maybe part of West County. And I think unless you get St. Louis County on board with this, it's going to be really challenging because they're going to supply most of the money to construct it because they have more people. Is, am I getting this right or am I, am I reading this wrong? I think to some extent that's accurate. I, w- I will say with the current makeup of the county council being led by County Executive Sam Page, I've worked with the county probably on a three to five things since he was um, named county executive and I I had never previously worked with the county at all in any capacity and I think there's like more like-minded folks in the county now than we've had before in terms of understanding the inequities of St. Louis um, the the entire region and maybe right now might be the best time (coughs) since they withheld funding to Metro until it becomes safe. So, but we need to start having those conversations. Absolutely. I think the most recent study indicated that 47,000 people would likely use the line and it could create about 65,000 jobs. So those are pretty big numbers. Before we move on to other topics, I'm going to quickly go back to the soccer stadium because Nicole Galloway did just release an audit of special taxing districts in the city. You'd be asking for three of them related to the stadium. Do you think that that audit is going to influence how influence whether or not the board passes what it needs to to create those taxing districts? That's a great question, and I'm not really concerned about. I appreciate the auditor's um, time. The Board of Aldermen um, ourselves asked for the audit of all city agencies, and so we you know, understand that there's going to be some criticism. I, I will say that to some extent, uh, the all of these things are a function of the state. And so, you know, working with the state legislature for, you know, to change the enabling statutes that allow us to establish these districts is important. I think we've all been very, you know, concerned about the fact that there's not a lot of oversight, but in a lot of the deals, um, for example, a deal that we just worked on in Lafayette Square, they have started agreeing to having people from the neighborhood or people from the city sit on those boards. And so there is... Um, you know, hopefully likely more transparency and a bigger, broader conversation about the 
what's best for the community and not just what's best for the developer. But there are definitely things that we need to work on. And kind of going back to Prop 1 for May, we're kind of going back and forth on this. Time shifting here. (laughs) Does there come a point, though, when, and maybe not any time in the near future, but maybe in the next few years, if it's clear that North-South Metrolink is not going to happen, does there have to be a discussion about another place that money goes to? Because, I mean... I mean, I understand the reasoning behind North-South Metrolink, and I think it's really important for people that don't have access to cars, which I think is a huge problem for people who are in poverty. But on the other hand, if you're collecting money for something that's not going to happen, I think it has to prompt a broader conversation. What what do you think of that? I think that in hindsight, I I wish I would have included bus rapid transit as a piece to be studied along with the light rail piece. Um, But north-south public transportation, I think, is key to making sure that the region is stabilized and that we are addressing um, the inequities that we've faced as a region for such a long time. And as long as I'm at the board, I'm not comfortable with spending the money that was set aside by voters um, for public transportation on anything else. And so whether or not we have those conversations at the board, if we bring it back to the ballot, um, that money that's set aside right now should sit there until uh, there's public comment on doing something else with it. We'll be right back with Alderwoman Christine Ingracia right after this word from our sponsor. And we're back with St. Louis Alderwoman uh, Christine Ingracia. I want to talk about another issue that I think is going to reach critical mass pretty soon, and that is quote-unquote airport privatization. That's kind of the shorthand that reporters like us use to describe this process that may bring a private operator to run St. Louis-Lambert International Airport. Did I get the name right? You did, we're, we're, but let's be fair, it's Lambert. Okay, <laughs> we've been talking about names. Um, it's Lambert, like everyone just calls it Lambert. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be blunt here. Like I'm watching this kind of as an observer and I think everything I see signals that this is not going to be put on the ballot, that it's going to come down to the Board of Aldermen to vote yes or no on this. Maybe they put it on the ballot afterward, but frankly, I don't think that the people that want airport privatization want this to go to the ballot. So I want to hear, first of all, am I right on that? And second of all, what's going to be your posture if you have to make a decision that could be the like most important vote you ever make on the Board of Aldermen? Like, no pressure or anything, but, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really thinking... That made my stomach hurt a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> or it could just be the cup of coffee, who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, airport privatization, in fact, uh, privatization of any huge asset that the city of St. Louis has just, in my mind, doesn't make any sense to me unless we bring it to the voters. They're the ones who um, created the money to have the airport, to have the water division, to have, uh, you know, some of the, the few places that we have that actually generate a profit for the city um, as, a, as a part of our city government. And I think you are accurate. The way that the situation seems to be now looks like there's likely not going to be a public vote. Uh, and that really surprises me um, working with the colleagues I do just because of how many things have been identified with respect to conflicts of interest and ties to Rex Singfeld and all of the case studies around the country of attempted airport privatization or other privatization efforts. You know, one of my favorite botch deals is the Chicago parking meter privatization. And they got $1 million, or excuse me, $1 billion up front, literally as soon as the ink was dry on the contract. 
Um, the city itself released a study that said that sale was undervalued by about an additional billion dollars. And then the city of Chicago had to start asking for permission to close streets. They were, had um, penalties for removing parking meters for pedestrian and bike-friendly um, infrastructure and a number of other things. I, I just don't see it working well anywhere in terms of benefits for employees, salary for employees, and any long-term benefit. It's, I guess, maybe a nice win up front if you want to pay off some bills, but in the long term, I, I just don't think it makes any sense. So is the objection to the lack of a public vote, is the objection to the com uh, concept of privatization as a whole, or is there an element of both here? I think absolutely both. I, and I think, as Jason mentioned, that the folks who are interested in moving airport privatization forward don't want this to go on the ballot because they know that the city residents are going to say no. Do you not have confidence, though, that there are 15 members of the Board of Aldermen that will say we're not doing this under any circumstances? I have not started thinking about those votes yet. But yeah, I mean, concerned, definitely concerned, especially because Alderwoman Spencer's last bill, um, our most recent bill to put the vote on the ballot got tabled in committee, which is kind of a term of art at the board. Or, you know, it's making sure you know the rules. Usually a bill will just get held if you don't want to move it forward at that time or you want to make some changes. But it got tabled, which means that two thirds of the transportation committee um, will be needed to vote to get it out versus just a simple majority. And if I remember correctly, it also means that the full board wouldn't be able, has no mechanism to force it from committee if it is put on the table as opposed to just kind of lingering in the ether. Correct. And Which is also an issue and a topic we'll be talking about later. In just a minute. This is a question I haven't asked the other Alder people that I've brought on here. But, you know, one interest group that has been conspicuously silent during this is organized labor. And I'm talking about the trade unions. I'm talking about non-trade unions. And it's surprising to me because so many elements of Lambert are unionized. And you, it could make an argument that if there's a private operator, they're going to be arguably more hostile to a, a unionized workforce than a public entity for, for various reasons. Like, you know, if it's a public entity and it's kind of run by political people that have to listen to organized labor, there may be more tuned to it. If the organized labor community put out a statement saying, we are opposed to airport privatization and the Board of Aldermen should vote no, how many votes do you think there would be against it? I think it would be a lot more difficult for folks at the board to vote for privatization or to keep it off the ballot if organized labor were more vocal about their position. But I think most of us know kind of behind the scenes that it, labor is against it. And I think that there are some, it, you know, it's difficult if you think that there are possibly jobs coming with expansion and things like that. But I think most of us know, including uh, the folks in, in labor, that the same potential for jobs. As soon as we pay off this debt within the next five years, we have a bunch of private land that's um, able to be redeveloped. The airport is, um, you know, decreasing in ways that it should in terms of per passenger um, cost and increasing in ways it should in terms of having airplanes touch down and passengers come through and provide $7 million a year, usually, um, to, this, to the budget. What do you make of the 
counties sort of sudden interest in this. And I'm not talking just St. Louis County. I'm talking Jefferson, or excuse me, St. Charles County as well. All of a sudden, it's, oh, this is a regional asset, and we need to be thinking about this regionally. I guess there's, yeah, one school of thinking that says we should be incredulous about their sudden interest because they just want to be able to reap the benefits of any possible privatization money that comes in. But um, I guess I'm not that cynical yet, and I'm hoping that they're just very concerned about the lack of transparency, the conflicts of interest, and just how big of a mess this has become, and, and hoping to help make that situation better. And another counter argument that's been floated by proponents of airport privatization is, let's say the deal is a couple billion dollars, and a lot of that money could not only pay off the debt at Lambert, but could potentially go into you know, North St. Louis to help its infrastructure, or South St. Louis as well, to solve all sorts of problems. Wouldn't that be a reasonable payoff despite kind of the the perils of privatization? I, I would like you to respond to that because I feel like that's going to be an argument that's going to be talked about a lot over the next few months. I don't, I don't think it justifies a short-term expenditure of money. I mean, we see this over and over again in the city where we pay for something and then we don't take the time to figure out what the long-term maintenance um, looks like on it or you know how to fund programs for the long term. And I think that while I you know definitely am empathetic to my colleagues in the deep south and the deep north and think that there are ways that we need to address um, the disinvestment there, I don't think a, a, a one-time payout is going to solve the problems and we need to come up with ways to increase our revenue um, on an ongoing basis as a way to address those issues. So based off all the responses to the question we've asked, I can't really see you voting yes under any circumstances for this. Is that fair? If I vote yes, I've been possessed. Okay. That is probably the most straightforward answer I've gotten about that, so I appreciate that. Uh, the last topic uh, is also something that Rachel just alluded to about tabling and all sorts of uh, procedural, procedural shenanigans. Uh, or shenanigan, <laughs> and that is uh, what's historically known as the Board of Freeholders, also known as the Board of Electors. As of this taping, we're taping this on November 26th. 2019, not out of the question that on the 27th this could be resolved, but probably not. Um, nah, pretty out of the question. No, I, I think it's not <laughs> going to be resolved because the board's out of session. Um, basically, uh, Mayor Krusen is responsible for appointing nine members of this board that could offer up uh, consolidations of services or governments. The county has already put its nine members in place. The governor has pl- placed its member in place. But there's been this impasse in the Intergovernmental Affairs Committee for, for reasons that I think we can you, if you go to St. Louis Public Radio.org, you can you can kind of read more in depth. Tape whole podcast about it. We we could. But I think that the long and short of it is I think that there are some members of that committee who are not satisfied and not happy with the appointees that the mayor put forward. You're not a member of that committee, but you're probably following this process closely and you will get to vote on the final slate. So eventually I'd be, maybe possibly. I would like to hear your take on this uh procedurally confusing and vexing situation. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm giggling only because it just, to, you know, speaking of shenanigans, I really have n- no idea who is motivated by what in terms of how we have gotten to where we are today. I think that the mayor's office could have been more inclusive about how the application looked and reaching out to aldermen in terms of um, who 
applied to be on the board of electors, but she did actually, in fact, send all of us an email and I think put something in all of our mailboxes, a hard copy, requesting that if we had people who were interested in applying, that we we should send those people her way. She uh, sent along her original nominations, and then it's just been, I'm assuming, political backroom dealing, um, all of the sort of things that people, uh, everyday people are not really wild about and I think rightfully have constructive criticism about the board about. Because the fact of the matter is if we don't appoint our slate, we will. We have a quorum. So we, the city of St. Louis will not be represented if we don't get our act together and get some nominees appointed. And there is a timeline, you know, it, it, it's a ticking timeline. The board has a year to make recommendations to the region. And there's some different interpretations about that. Some people believe that the timeline doesn't start until the city is seated, but that we don't know the answer to that. Like there, your interpretation could be correct. And I think that the scenario I've been continually bringing up on Twitter, and it's not I'm not encouraging this, but I'm just warning city people about this, is the board could hire attorneys that the city and county would have to pay for. And they could be the most expensive attorneys in the world if they really wanted to stick it to the city and send a message. And those attorneys could either study that exact scenario about moving forward without the city or even potentially more costly for the city the board of freeholders slash electors could sue the city because the city is clearly in violation of the Missouri Constitution. The question is, though, whether that would actually lead to anything because there's no remedy within the constitutional language about what happens when you miss that deadline. Right. So, but, and there's but, not also really much case law, if any. I think there may be a case from like around 1950 that discusses a and that similar discusses situation. timelines of appointing. I don't know that it, yeah, it, and it's it's a strange case. I've, I've read that opinion. It, we were talking about this a little bit offline. How much of this do you think could be just both sides are getting what they want with this delay? In that terms of? It, that they're not maybe working in concert to kill the process, but they wouldn't be unhappy if the process died. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if there were uh, efforts behind the scenes to just blow the whole thing up, but that would be very disappointing. And because of just what I spoke about, I mean, if we don't move forward with representation in the city, then we have people in the county and a governor's representative making decisions for us, possibly. I do want to bring in the argument, though, from the <coughs> members of that committee, because I actually think that they have legitimate grievances with the mayor's initial appointments. One of the biggest sources of tension, not only with the now dead better together plan, but with any discussion of city county merger, consolidating of services, is the effect of African-American political power and, and effect of government services toward largely African-American areas. And in the committee's view, not having people from North St. Louis, which could be greatly impacted by any plan, didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And it made sense to have this delay to make sure people from that area are at the table pushing back and contributing toward a plan. So what do you think of that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that the administration has enough uh, political knowledge within the offices to understand that exact dynamic. And I, I'm definitely sympathetic to that argument. I mean, we've seen years of some, uh, um, I mean, St. Louis has its own version of racism, and it's terrible and awful. And I think that the mayor's office, again, could have been, you know, much more thoughtful about the original appointments. But I think now that we've we've gotten past the point, I mean, the mayor is obviously amenable to adding folks from North City. And now I feel like there's definitely 
some disagreement within the Northside aldermen themselves about how they want to be represented and who they want to have representing them. But definitely, yeah, we, we need to make sure that we're being thoughtful north-south. And in a perfect world, I think it's too late for it now, we would have been more thoughtful about, you know, inclusivity with respect to LGBTQ folks um, and, you know, other populations of folks living in the city. It's one of the most complex um, and troubling things I've worked on at the board. There's likely no really great right or wrong answers, but I hope we get to a place very quickly where we at least have um, some semblance of agreement and move the votes forward needed to appoint the people to participate in the process. Well, Alderwoman, thank you so much for joining us this morning for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. You have a kind of a complicated Twitter handle. Like, it's No, it's actually really easy. It's just Chrissy, C-H-R-Y-S-S-I. It's, I guess it's complicated for me because I don't know how to spell, but, you know. <laughs> I thought I was being cool in seventh grade and I, I, changed how I spelled my name. Well, I think it's a very cool handle. It's certainly more... Uh, creative than most political Twitter handles that I've seen. So congratulations on that. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Until next time, so long. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five